I'm Christopher Calloway, and welcome to Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and other mediums. In a sense, this week's interview is part two of the one I did last week. Today I have with me writer and artist Billy Tucci. He is working on Appalachian Apocalypse with artist Ethan Nicole. However, the spotlight shines fully upon Billy today as we talk not only about his work on Appalachian Apocalypse through Cave Pictures Publishing, but also his other work, most notably the miniseries Sergeant Rock, The Lost Battalion through DC Comics, for which he was bestowed a special ambassadorship. We will also reflect upon his creator-owned property, She, which is 25 years old. He has something in the works for She coming up in the months ahead. It will be a Kickstarter for Return of the Warrior, but you can get a taste of that through his current Kickstarter, which is for Zombie Sama. A She Ashcan of that comic book is available for one of the pledge levels. Billy has already met the funding goal of $15,000 and the first stretch goal of $25,000. There is now a second stretch goal, so check it out and jump on board before March 1st. In the Kicking Back with the Creator segment, Billy answers my questions. And we find out how close last week's guest Ethan Nicole was to guessing how Billy would answer. This interview is brought to you by The Comic Book Shop in Wilmington, Delaware at 1855 Marsh Road at the Plaza 3 Shopping Center where comics are for everyone, just be nice. A lot of fun lies ahead in my discussion with Billy Tucci, here now on Creator Talks. Billy, welcome to Creator Talks. Oh, thank you, Chris. It's good to see you. How are you this New Year's? I'm doing great so far. So far, so good. Enjoying your 2019, I hope? Yes, I am. Yes, I am very much. Excellent. I saw your signature, Ambassador de la Région de Brière. Yes. <laughs> Please tell me about that great honor and how that was bestowed <laughs> and why upon you. I don't know why it was bestowed upon me. Uh, I still can't get over it. But uh, when I was researching Sergeant Rock, the Lost Battalion, I uh, now we're going back 10 years now. I was in contact with several historians of this particular battle in the Vosges region where the actual Lost Battalion battle took place. And they just helped me tremendously over months, sending me all sorts of things, hooking me up actually with the actual veterans who I became friends with, interviewing the veterans. Because when DC Comics, Roger Rock and Lost Battalion get the green light, they felt, and I too, that it should be something far more than just another war comic, if you will, almost like a documentary, because these veterans were so involved in this battle that was really forgotten in time to antiquity, I guess, or overlooked, and because it specifically focused on the Japanese-American soldiers. And they're the ones that are the stars of the Lost Battalion alongside Easy Company and Sergeant Rock. And how the story is, is that Sergeant Rock and Easy Company were part of 275 men who were trapped behind enemy lines in the Vosges Mountains. And repeatedly, the other white troops were trying to break through to them and could never break through to them. They were taking horrific casualties. And finally, the general, General John Dahlquist, made the order and said, literally, send in the Japs. And by the Japs, he meant the Japanese-American soldiers of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. And they had just gotten done with two weeks of fighting in the region themselves and were supposed to be having a few days off. And he just threw them in because, quite frankly, due to racism at the time, he really didn't care if they lived or died. We focus on literally two companies, Easy Company 
with Sergeant Rock and Little Short Shot, Bulldozer, Ice Cream Soldier, and the rest. And then Item Company, which is a real company of Japanese-American soldiers. And at the beginning of the series, they end up getting into a big brawl at a baseball game. It's kind of fun and whimsical. But at the end, the Japanese-Americans were the ones to break through to the Americans and rescue the lost battalion. And what's so interesting is that these Japanese-Americans, the item company, you know, the Japanese-American company, they had started the Battle of the Vosges Mountains with 185 men. And they were the first to reach the Lost Battalion, this particular company. And when they did reach them, there was only eight of them left. So it just shows the sacrifice of these men and how, you know, they literally were American samurai. And they felt because of the racism, because they were treated like second-class citizens or even enemies of the state, they had to do better. You know, of course, they were all afraid, but they wouldn't let that stop them. They had a mission and they accomplished their mission. And what's so so amazing about these soldiers is that their families were interned behind barbed wire in concentration camps here in the United States. And they went so far for another's freedom and to die for another's freedom while their own families were being incarcerated back home. And it's an amazing story. And the Japanese Americans, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, by the end of World War II became the, the most highly decorated army unit in U.S. military history. So I want to tell that story. And the people of the Vosges Mountains and the town of Bruyers, where these battles were fought in and around, also want people to know that story. So I planned two trips to go to France to visit, you know, to walk the actual battlefield, to actually lay down in the actual foxholes where the fighting took place. Now, these American soldiers, these 275 American soldiers, were surrounded by 7,000 German troops. And the order had come out to take no prisoners literally to just wipe them out. Once the Japanese finally did break through, they were resupplied by the air. They were able to go on the offensive and they ended up winning the entire battle. They took the fight to the Germans. It was pretty incredible. So I'm there in France and I'm there for almost a week studying the battlegrounds, the water holes where they fought over the water holes because they needed water. And they're literally fighting over a little swampy area with a tiny pond in it. And well, we were there because it was in November, I think, or it might have been October around the time of the battle. And we start driving up to the mountains in the snow, this beautiful falling snow and these 200 foot tall pines up in the mountains. And all of a sudden there's all this press there. There's dignitaries and these big Mercedes cars and stuff like that. And it ended up being that there was the vice president of the region. And I believe in France, there's one president and I think like 12 or so vice presidents, each representing their own region. And they gave me a wreath and they had a band and they had a priest and they made this big prayer and we laid wreaths for the Americans, for the French, for the Germans even. I think they did that too because of the soul. It was this beautiful ceremony and I was representing the United States. And then afterwards, we go back for a dinner and they bestow this ambassadorship upon me by the vice president. I'm like, I don't deserve this. He goes, well, this is yours and you better, this is real. You are now an ambassador of the Bose regions. We want you to tell the Americans what happened here. Tell your countrymen what happened here. And it was incredible. It, it just was. I mean, I got a plaque and a certificate and, and, and a lamp they made for all these wonderful things. So I'm like, I'm going to put this on my headstone when I die. And he says, you better. <laughs> it's just, it really is a great honor. And by George, I'm keeping it. <laughs> it's an amazing and, honor. And all because of, yeah, it is. And all because of comics, 
all because of comic books. Wow. It's just incredible. It really is. That was the greatest honor of my career is to do that, to work with those veterans. And sadly, so many of them who worked with me on this book are gone now. They became great friends. And I guess I was almost like their adopted grandson. You know, <laughs> what are you going to do? It's just what it is. And the great thing, though, about it is that I hope I taught one person or was able to share their story and had one person to understand what happened and to take that back. And a lot of the veterans love the idea of it, too, because their grandchildren were able to read. And when we drew it and we went down to the most minute detail about everything from the types of vehicles that were there to the actual terrain, the way it looked, the actual buildings that were used, the ribbons on the uniforms, you know, every single thing had to be exactly what someone would be wearing, the types of uniforms boots, clothing, etc. It was great. We got a lot of great reviews for the book. The book sold out immediately. And we even won the uh, Military Writers Society of America for um, Book of the Year in the, in the uh, graphic novel department or something like that, something historical fiction or something like that. So it was, uh, again, a great honor, great honor. It was a beautiful book, and I've been looking for it. <laughs> I mean, it's 10 years ago, but I'm looking for it now. Yeah, yeah, I don't have them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny because I think the soft cover is still in print, but they made a lot of hard covers, and the hard covers just blew out. Wow. And I, I don't think they've reprinted the hard cover. But hopefully we'll do another. I've got a better story in mind, which is more of a true homage to Bob Kaniger and Joe Kubert. So hopefully we'll get to do that this year or next. We'll see. Fingers crossed. I'm wondering if you saw the movie because I was so into this when I heard about it was uh, They Shall Not Grow Old by Peter Jackson doing the restoration of the World War One film? Not yet. No, not yet. I've been so busy, but it's in theaters, right? It had a limited engagement, but I think it might be back out. You know, it's so funny because I'm in the Writers Guild of America and I get sent the movies to vote for, you know, like a lot of the films that are Oscar worthy or that will be Oscar nominated or Writers Guild nominated. They send you the videos, the movies and DVDs to watch them. So I've gotten so spoiled because, man, I'd like to just pop some popcorn and sit there on the couch and watch these films instead of going to the theaters. But um, I'll definitely look that up because I have a couple of friends that want to go see it. But I heard it'll make you cry. Oh, it's amazing. Highly recommend it. So I'm sure I'll get a chance to see it. I'm here in New York, so there's a lot of great theaters that have those limited releases and films. Now, recently, you were in Florida and you were doing a comic signing at the Comic Spot. Well, actually, you're doing sketches, commissions, anything. And you were there with Mr. Neil Adams, who you two go way back. When was the first time you met Neil? I met Neil, uh, terrified to meet him the first time, back in, we're going 25 years now. And you hear all the stories about Neil Adams from all the other people that have wanted to break into comics and showed him their portfolios. And I mean, he knows his stuff. I mean, he's a genius. I don't even know how the interview got set. I might have sent samples in if I can come in and show him. And I went in there and he looked at my stuff and he was producing a book called Samory. And the pages I had were the first pages for she, you know, maybe, maybe 10, 12 pages of she number one, because of course I wanted to publish my own comic, but the brass ring, you know, the gold ring is to work for Marvel or DC. He looked it over and, and he didn't really say much. He's like, well, you know, that strap around her legs, that should be a little more rounded, don't you think? Like, oh, yes, of course. Miss Adams like, okay, but this is really good. I'm doing a book called Samarie, if you've heard of it. I said, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with it, of course. And he said, well, let's see, maybe we can get you on a couple of pages of that book. And I said, great. After that, I think by the time he got back to me, I had already solicited she number one because it was only a few months before. 
And I'm like, well, I'm going to take my chance with this book if that's okay. I'm working on the second issue right now. And he was always so affable to me. I see him at the conventions. I got to drive in the car with him for about an hour and a half to and from the signing. And I just got to hear these incredible stories that he has. You want to talk about someone with stories. Wow. He's been doing this 50 plus years. I guess almost 60 years he's been writing and illustrating comics. And the Stan stories and Kirby stories, DC in the 70s and the 60s, but also stories about like when he was a kid and he worked at Coney Island <laughs> and he worked on the on the, uh, the merry-go-round at Coney Island as a kid and just telling stories. It was funny. It was, what a, it was great. It was, it was just terrific. I've heard other interviews with him, and he's a great storyteller. Oh, man, he is. He's such a big guy, and he's so intimidating, I think, because of, again, how he is to artists, because he's no BS. He'll tell you straight. And if you can't handle the criticism, but I'm sure he's crushed many a, a, a dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's honest. But fortunately for me, I got him on a good day. <laughs> And then, of course, he was always proud of me that I was able to do my book, just like uh, John Romita was. You know, when I got the chance to meet John Romita, the similar story to that, too. He looked over the pages and he's like, what is this? And I said, oh, this is my comic I'm publishing. And he said to me, wait, you're publishing your own comic? I'm like, yes, I want to do my own book. He's like, well, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> and I said the same thing. Well, Marvel's the brass ring. I want to draw Spider-Man. I grew up loving these characters. He's like, do your own book. <laughs> You will, you'll own everything. Everything you do in this book is all yours. Do your own book. If it doesn't work out or you want to come back, come back. There'll always be a place for you here. <laughs> wow. And he encouraged me to be like, yeah, you know what? I am going to do my own book. I am going to follow my own dream. And now here I am 25 years later, you know, 100 plus issues or I don't know how many issues. I've, well, that's a she, but man, I've worked on 300 issues or so, I guess, over the 25 years in some you know, one form or another. And uh, now I'm talking to you on the, the interwebs. <laughs> and you're still at it. And you have another book coming out. You're writing, actually, Appalachian Apocalypse through Cave Pictures yes. Publishing. You went to a con about a week ago, Albuquerque Comic Con at the convention center. How was the feedback? How are people receiving the first issue that's already out? It was great because I hadn't seen the first issue. I had seen, you know, files of it, of course. And the Cave team is so amazing. My editor sends me breakdowns pencils, inks, colors, every step of the way for your approval. Ethan Nicole, who's the illustrator and the colorist on it, he's phenomenal. He's got this beautiful, witty animation style that just moves the story so fast. And you can see it's almost like a cartoon. It's almost like a film, the way it moves. And um, just blown away. I, I've always really admired cartoonists and animators. Darwin Cook is one of my all-time favorites. And I love Jeff Smith, Michael Oming. Uh, and Ethan Nicole and even John Brolia, who I'm working with on our Zombie Sama book, which launches today as a Kickstarter. You know, they all have this animation background. I just love it. The confidence in the line and how alive it is expressed so much with so few lines. When I'm sitting there digging away at every little detail because I'm so insecure about my own work. But the feedback's phenomenal. People love it. They're laughing. I wouldn't call it a zombie rom-com, if you will, but there's that element to it. But it's got a real true spiritual side to it to give a reason why the zombie apocalypse could happen because there's so many different ways to create zombies. And this particular one, we wanted to go way back to the Bible and to the story of Lilith, queen of the demons. And it really fits in how you actually 
end the, the, the apocalypse or try to end it or try to stop it, it all goes back to biblical times. It's a lot of fun. It was refreshing to work on something like that. Now, there are a couple of characters in the story that are making their first appearance in comics, but it's actually returned. Caleb and George. Tell me about them. <laughs> yeah, Caleb and George are, I guess, our main supporting characters. And they are just two hometown hillbilly boys. And they were actually taken from a short film I made about 15 years ago called Some Trouble of a Serious Nature. And the film is based on a letter written by a World War II pilot who had then worked for Vought Sikorsky that made the Corsair fighter plane. This is now right after the war, maybe a year or two after the war. And he had typed up this hysterical letter, which is legendary now in aviation circles, called Some Trouble of a Serious Nature, two R's in serious, and it's phonetically punched out of this old typewriter. It's jagged, and it's addressed from Hockey Jock, Arkansas, and it tells the story of a ferry pilot who is taking a Corsair from Connecticut, where they're built, to San Diego for it to be shipped overseas. And while he's over Arkansas, he gets wind that the war's over, over the radio. So he decides to land it, that plane in a field, ends up getting drunk, falling out of a barn, taking away to the hospital, and this airplane's sitting there. So then these two fellas, Caleb and George, end up buying that airplane off of some traveling salesman, you know, some con man for $100. And they end up trying to fly this plane during the state fair. And it's hysterical. We won the Long Island Film Festival for Best Short Film, which is a big film festival out here. And then we were in the uh, San Diego Comic-Con International Film Festival. They don't give awards for that. But those are the only two festivals that we put it in. It was great. We're re-digitizing it now, so I'll be putting it up on YouTube this year as well. Oh, excellent. And, it's, yeah, it's a funny, funny, funny thing. And so I, I had to put Caleb and George in there. We're in, in Appalachia. They're going in. And they had a nice comedic element to it. Don't take yourself so seriously, you know. If, if, I guess if the zombie apocalypse happened, these guys would be like, oh, okay, just another day. <laughs> <laughs> And there's moonshine and things like that. It's, it's, it's fun. Now tell me how faith is connected to the means of fighting these zombies. Well, I can't give too much away now. There's a reason for this abomination to happen. The way to stop it is to have faith in oneself. Now, there is one particular character who's really interesting, and he's really the hero of it all, and his name is Isaiah. And Isaiah is a 160-year-old black former Buffalo soldier. And he has been infected from the initial battle of Bald Mountain back in 1864 in Appalachia, in the mountains of Tennessee. And he has been able to keep his zombification, I guess, in check through his faith. And it all goes back to the Old Testament and how it speaks of how the dead shall walk the earth and things like that. And he, though, with his faith in God and himself, is able to remain human, even though he's petrified almost. His skin is petrified. His eyes are glazed over. And you see, though, as he loses faith or as others around him lose faith, you see the zombification start to accelerate within him. Again, I don't want to give away too much, but it's really cool. <laughs> and uh, it's a whole different take, which I'm hoping it is. It's scary. It's really terrifying. But again, he has the whole thing that he's the peacemaker. He's the pacifist while all this is happening. So we go back to even um, Isaiah 6, 8, when the Lord, and I'm paraphrasing, where he says, you know, well, who should I send? You know, who will go for me? And, you know, Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And that's 
basically where the whole thing comes with him. That's the true core of him and his belief in faith and how he becomes a hero in the story. And we also have a lot of biblical references to Esther, to, uh, oh, I can't ruin it for you. It, it's a lot of fun. We hope that this is, we lace this really nice spirituality throughout the story. It's a faith-based zombie comic. <laughs> <laughs> we hope it speaks on so many other levels. That's what I was trying to do. What's amazing is this zombie story, the artist Ethan Nicole that's working on it, he has this kind of animation style that even though it's a bloody topic, it could be gory, it makes it a little more lighthearted and fun, puts some humor into it because of the way it's presented. So it makes it very, well, it's all ages, right? Yes, of course, yes. And how many zombie books can be all ages right. out there anyway? Kids <laughs> love zombies. Everyone loves zombies. This is my only all-ages zombie comic I think I'll ever do. Unless we go to Appalachian Apocalypse 2. It's amazing how you look at the monsters of the past. Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, the mummy. And now it seems like zombies have become a part of that. They've become another classic monster because it could be anyone. It could be yourself. You could be part of this plague and be actually a monster. So it's become a classic. Why do you think yes. these zombies are so enduring? Why do they keep coming up with new stories about zombies? You would think it'd be eh, too easy. And the thing is, is that there are so many different, really original ways of telling the zombies because there's so many different types of zombies. And I also think it's the fear of death or the fear of infection that really propels the zombies to, you know, most inner things. You know, they talk about vampires, and I guess because they're sexy and sexual confusion, or you don't know who you are, or the fear of your sexuality, or, you know, just sexy zombies are just the opposite sex, or the same sex, or whatever the heck you, you know, however you feel about things. But that's why vampires are, but what's even cooler, though, about zombies is that kids aren't really that into, you know, little kids, I'm talking about, like, you know, teenagers and stuff, except for the whole Twilight romantic thing, aren't so much into vampires. But man, do my kids, like my little guys, my youngest is 12. And he's been a zombie fanatic putting on zombie makeup since he's probably five years old himself, just doing it himself. It's just cool. Just walk around, uh, you know, from the old, you know, night of the living dead zombie to the really fast 28 days later infected zombies. It's just endless. And it's just fascinating. And everyone, everyone I know has got a zombie story. And I'd have to tell you, like of my buddies who make comics and all, you know, my fellow peers. And I got to tell you, you know, just about every single one of them is completely different and fantastic. Like, wow. I get that. Okay. Let's go. Yeah, I, I dig that one. You're doing three zombie stories this year. Appalachian Apocalypse is one. The other you just mentioned recently was Zombie Sama. Tell me about that Kickstarter you said starts January 30th. Yes, Zombie Sama started January 30th. Is a story that we've been working on for 10 years. It's my very first zombie story I ever came up with going back to high school. And this is totally Night of the Living Dead type, you know, the dead shall walk the earth. And this also is a bit funny, too. It's not quite all ages, but it does have a real great sense of humor. And this is a red rain. It opens up with a French salvage ship finding a Russian sub. It's rumored that there are a dozen or so Russian submarines sunk in the Baltic and the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans, just laying at the bottom with, with dead sailors on it and nuclear missiles. <laughs> So they find one of these ships and they're bringing it up and it explodes. And by exploding, it creates this red rain. And what the red rain does is it carries over to the East Coast of the United States and is suffocating people. It's killing all the red blood cells. So what it's doing is that it's almost like, remember, with, um, with HIV, where your white cell count is so 
up there. It just explodes your white cell count. And here are these people that unfortunately die, but their white cells are so irradiated that now their nervous system has been shocked and animated because now what they need, the white blood cell count is so high, they need red blood cells. They need oxygen. They need blood. And that's how they start going at the people to try to survive, to keep going. It's a real primal thing. And that's people that are alive. And the funny thing about Jim is that Jim ends up getting locked in his sushi store where he works. He's a delivery boy. He ends up getting locked in a freezer. <laughs> but of course, the power goes out and all the fish melt around him. So he smells like fish. So the zombies don't bother him. <laughs> they just look at him and they run past him at one point. He's like, I'll protect you. And all his friends running away, he's like giving them a second. And also the zombies just rush by him by the hundreds. And he's just standing in the center like, ah! And, and, and he just turns around, he's left in a cloud of dust, and they just ignore him completely. At one point, the guy says, well, you do kind of stink like shit, you know? Because <laughs> he doesn't smell human. He doesn't smell, you know, alive because of the fish smell. And I came up with that idea 30 years ago. You know, just, I was always funny just because I love samurai films, and I just love the idea of him like, this is my moment. Even one that's kind of cut in half just crawls right past him with its entrails hanging and he looks back he's like i really can't win here he is the type of guy that the zombie apocalypse really is the best thing that ever happened to him because he's a teen slacker and then he becomes a teen sensation zombie somehow and he does end up becoming a hero and saving his well i can't i, I can't ruin it i can't ruin it it's going to run through february the kickstarter yes and ends on march 1st listeners if they could please support us uh because we can't do it without them we've done all the artwork is finished we just have to finalize our color and our lettering, and bam, get that book out right away. Get it in the hands of people. See, February, March, and April, I guess. Depend- I think it's five weeks for it to print. We'll have the book in people's hands come April. It's 60 pages, and then if we hit our certain goal, I think our first stretch goal was $25,000. We're asking for fifteen. If we can hit 25000 we're going to expand the book to 64 pages and add six pages of my next zombie story, which is called Company Z. And that's about, you know, World War II reenactors who have to end up parachuting into an elementary school during a zombie apocalypse to save kids. That's another one with a lot of heart, a lot of humor to it. And it's about these guys who are ordinary, you know, middle-aged men who know every single thing about what the 101st Airborne or the 82nd Airborne wore during World War II for each campaign. And they're experts in every single thing. They could tell you just about all the names of the troopers. They could tell you where they died, where they fought. They could tell you what type of boot laces they wore, who manufactured the jacket, everything about the rifles and the submachine guns and all. But they've never been in war, ever. And now they have to become the heroes they emulate. They trade out their blank cartridges for real ammunition, these World War II M1 Garands and Thompsons. And they literally have to jump out of an air out of a world war ii airplane in full combat gear into this school and save these kids that's been my dream project since and that story is probably 10 years old that i'd love to be my first feature film we'll see but if they can help support us that's it we have a lot of great stretch goals for zombie sound a lot of cool things you know that we'll be uh giving to people if we can keep hitting these stretch goals and i'm really excited about it because it also we are offering for the first time only my She, the Return of the Warrior, Ashcan edition. We're bringing Ashcan comics back. And this will be a nice 16-page pre- preview comic about our next Kickstarter, which takes place in the spring. I guess in May we'll launch that. And it's for She, Return of the Warrior. And in this one, she is a single mom. Yes. She will be a single mother raising her 16-year-old daughter 
Her warrior days are far behind her, and then it all comes back. And now she has to once again take up, you know, the Naginata, her armor, to save not only herself, but also her daughter. And what's cool about that, because we'll have some funny things in that where she'll be trying on the old costume for a bit. And like, oh, my God, how in the world did I have a fitness thing? You know, because <laughs> she's not 20 years old, right. you know, not a 22-year-old, you know, ballet dancer type waif. <laughs> but it's sort of a comic book grows up. And it's just something that, you know, I've thought about this for a few years now myself. And I got to tell you, I was also a bit anxious or really anxious about a Kickstarter, right? Like right now, I'm nervous as heck. I hope we hit our goal. I hope people want the books. I hope they want the Zombie Sama book because it's very intimidating, you know, to put your creativity on the line and ask people to pledge for it, ask people to contribute to your comic. But Hopefully they will. Got a nice funny video. If you just go to Billy Tucci Kickstarter Zombie Sama, you'll be able to find it. It's that easy, and I will put the link in the show notes, and this show will be out before the Kickstarters end. So I'll definitely share that. It's also with my partner, John Brolia, though. I, let's not take him away. John is the artist on it. I'm the writer on it, and we're true partners. But I think I had it say Billy Tucci Zombie Sama because it's easier because people know me. I've been around a long time. <laughs> Bring people who aren't familiar with she, who's been around for 25 years, up to speed about her, the 500 years of the Shadow Wars, and then why you decided, based on feedback, to have she appear as a single mom versus being married to someone. Yes, she, the way the warrior, was our very first storyline, and it tells the story of Anna Ishikawa, our protagonist, who is literally a soldier drafted into the Shadow War that's existed for about 500 years. Now, if anyone knows anything about Japan, it is the most beautifully artful society. You know, I mean, they take everything from the way that they paint to the woodblock prints to, you know, tea ceremonies. Everything is elevated to an art. That said, it's probably also one of the most misogynistic and violent societies the world's ever known as well. Very martial with the samurai mentality. And Anna is a descendant of samurai and of the Sohai warrior monks of medieval Japan. Now, the warrior monks of medieval Japan, if anyone's ever seen these great Japanese woodblock prints, or even in films, they've got these amazing white cowls that cover their heads over this glistening armor, and they really weren't priests at all, or monks at all. They were, you know, a lot of them had families. They were just samurai who were ordained priests or as monks to build the ranks of the temples. And they were still samurai. They still had families. They had concubines, all this stuff. But they built the power of the temples because the temples were warring with the shogun. And eventually the shogun ended up winning, of course. And, but this, this war, since that war ended, has carried over now into business and into the arts and into politics. And it's this shadow war that still goes on. And it's very intriguing and it laces into out not only Japanese society, but European society and American society. The story of Anna is that she is sent to the United States to kill the man who actually killed her father and her brother in this shadow war. And it's a story of redemption and forgiveness. Initially, she's the hunter, but after she ends up seeing the victims or the victims' families of those that she's battled with, she stops. But now she's the hunted. And it's a really cool story. And um, again, we play with a lot of beats of Japanese history, but also a very spiritual note to it because Anna's Catholic. And there's a lot of that war going against itself between the two different spiritualities, two different ways of life. We did the book. Uh, I think I did about 70 issues, maybe more. And we did it for 10 years. 
And I got to tell you, I just got burnt out, you know, doing the same thing. And then at this point in my career, I was able to work on all these great characters I loved because I did grow up a comics fan. But now I just needed to go back to her. I needed a great story. And I said, well, why not have Anna now be in her mid-40s? Let's make her a mother. You know, I've been with my wife for 30 years, and she's never looked more beautiful than she does to me now. So why not have a comic that grows up? And that's the thing. Also, the, uh, her being a single mother is if anyone has read the storylines, the she story, there was a police officer who was her love interest, and she ended up marrying him. But he got involved in police corruption. He ended up becoming a vigilante going against the police department and uh, eventually was caught and thrown in jail. So he's now in jail. He's alive, but he's in jail. And I didn't want to kill him. But, but I've been told many times, and I've done studies, and I've had questionnaires, and the one thing about she, and unfortunately it's with a lot of other female characters, and maybe because there are so many more male fans, but they don't want Anna to have a love interest. People never reacted to that well. And uh, I think the same goes with, like in the Wonder Woman film, with Steve Trevor. And I'm like, he's got to die in the film. I'm like, he's going to die. Because he can't live. Because I don't know... You know, and maybe it's just so misogynistic holdover, or maybe it's just primal how men are. Men are very possessive or something like that, but they did not react well to my character having a fiancé, a boyfriend, a lover, a husband. They just don't like that. Now, when it's a male-driven character, that's completely different. Superman can have Lois Lane. Batman can have Catwoman, but Batman had Catwoman first. I don't think anybody would want Selena Kyle to have anyone else but Bruce Wayne no matter how worthy they are. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, but this is just from what I've experienced. And I don't know if you agree with that, but it's weird. You see a lot of these female-driven characters and they don't want them to have a male companion. Well, they don't want them to be overshadowed. They want to give them a chance to just like be their own character, make them front and center, as they should. So that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, hopefully that's it, because I like that idea. I like that better than they're like, nope, not really interested, not really liking him. And the guy was like a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> But maybe that's it, too. Maybe that's it, too. But she doesn't need him anyway. You know, my mother raised six of us by ourselves. My father passed away when I was five years old. So my mother raised six kids, and she never remarried. She don't need no man. <laughs> <laughs> Netflix, when they had Jessica Jones, I know she had her relationship with Luke Cage, but it's like, well, why didn't they bring in Daredevil? Because they wanted her to develop on her own and be her own character and not be overshadowed by another character that's probably better known by most people as far as, you know, in the public eye. But that's why I think they kept other characters out of there for a while, not to crowd that character, let them develop and be their own person and have their own power and own strength. Yeah, I see that definitely. I definitely agree with that. I read that you were going to be at the Philadelphia Comic-Con in April. Yes, the greater Philadelphia Comic-Con of either Friday and Saturday. Because Sunday, I have my French convention out here on Long Island. Oh, the, um, <laughs> no, it's a small, great show. He's a buddy of mine. I can't miss that. That's like a family affair. But it's a great show he puts on as well. But I can't wait. Are you going to be at the Philadelphia, great Philadelphia Comic Con? Now I am. Because <laughs> oh, I right. saw you're going to be there. Because I'm pretty close. Like, I can get there within an hour. No problem. Oh, yes, you must come. We have to get together. Anybody else is there? Let's get together. Let's go out for a drink or something. Awesome. Um, no, it's a great show. It's in Valley Forge. You know, I'm hoping to come with the family, that we can get out a day before or something, maybe take off work, play some hooky, and have the kids take off school. And, you know, just to walk Valley Forge and to see the encampment. But what a great show. I mean, people out there, amongst the nicest people you'll ever meet, and that's a real comic show. I mean, they do have their big-name celebrities, but that's a real comic con. 
And it's so nice because they treat the cartoonists, the comic writers, the comic artists, just the same way they treat the celebrities. And it's wonderful. It's grown into one of my favorite conventions, and I hope they have me back next year. I hope so. I've been to it, and it's, it is a very nice con. And there are a lot of creators there. It's great for well-known creators, and there's a nice artist alley. So you get to meet people up and coming, people trying to break into comics. And you know, I saw like Jim Shooter there. Peter David was there. It's really worth checking out. Oh, yeah, the publishers are there and all, and it's a great, great time. So I'm honored that they asked me. I really am. I have questions to ask all my guests. I call these kicking back with the creator just to learn more about you. Now, I had a chance to talk to the artist on Appalachian Apocalypse, Ethan Nicole, earlier. And so, kind of playing the newlywed game, I said, Ethan, (laughs) what do you think Billy's going to say to these questions? What will be his answer? Now, that's tough, because he doesn't really know you, so he took his best shot. Okay. I didn't do it with all of them, because it wouldn't work. It's just too open a question. But the first question is, Billy... What do you like to do for rest and relaxation? Oh, I love to hunt. I love to fish. I love watching, playing, and going to hockey games and spending time with my family. The first, of course, is playing with my family. You never get enough time for that. You know, going to my son's concerts or their wrestling matches, things like that. Baseball games, that's the most important thing. How'd I do? Pretty good. Billy thought it was something to do with World War II or shooting guns, so hunting there. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do. Um, well, I, I'm probably reading about three books on World War II right now anyway <laughs> at the same time. And I do love going to the rifle range and stuff. It's just cold up here in New York. But I can still hunt. Bow hunting or gun hunting, it doesn't matter. I'm obsessed with it. I really am. Now, thinking back, what was your favorite or most memorable birthday? Now, Billy didn't know why. He just gave me an age. Can you think of a birthday that was important to you? I would say it was my 29th birthday. It was at a bar called Openers. It was in 1995. She was huge um, at this time. And I was totally accepted into the club, you know, because everyone was there. And it's also Jimmy Palmiotti's birthday. Jimmy's born the day after me, Palmiotti. Jimmy's born on the 14th of August. I'm the 13th. So it was both of our parties. But they had crazy stuff. They had a woman fire breathing. um, uh, I don't know what she would be. She just breathed fire, whatever they do, you know. They had a clown there. (laughs) <laughs> like a demented clown. They had a guy running around with a Roman helmet on and a diaper dancing on the bar. Just like the craziest, silliest things you could ever imagine. And the whole industry was out there. And I just got so much artwork and gifts and all. And I got a Dan DiCarlo original art that he drew she on an Archie cover. You know, Archie, original Archie artboard. And uh, she looked like Veronica, which is, of course, my favorite. Anyway, um, you know, I guess you put a blue wig on Betty and she looks like just like Veronica. But that was it. That was one for the ages. That was such a great time. Uh, it was right at the San Diego Comic-Con. We were all home. So many people still lived in New York because Marvel and DC were there or people were visiting. But there was a couple hundred people there at this bar. That's probably it. What did he say? He said your 21st <laughs> birthday because that's a good shot. You figure some people would remember their 21st birthday. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And I don't know what I, I think I was working. You know, that was the summer of college. You know, I worked for a, a sprinkler installer. So I think I probably was too tired to do anything or maybe just went to the crab house or something and had a beer and some crabs and clams. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you think back to middle school, what mm-hmm. posters and or pictures did you place on your bedroom wall? Oh, God. Oh, well, by then I was a hockey fanatic, so I had all hockey stuff. Elementary school, though, when I was in fifth grade was when the Farrah Fawcett Majors thing exploded. 
and I had, oh, man, I had to have a hundred pictures of her on my wall, stirs, everything, you know. Um, my sister had those magazines, you know, those teen 18 magazines, whatever. And I would just steal them all and cut her pictures out of them and tape them to my wall. But yeah, she's my first real crush was her. Um, junior high was, was hockey posters for sure. Now, Ethan Guest, military stuff, and uh, Leonard Skinner posters. So. <laughs> no, nah, yeah, I, I like Leonard Skinner. I did. By then, it was all hockey stuff. It was all dominated by hockey stuff, for sure, in middle school. <laughs> this is a hypothetical question. If you were stuck on a deserted island and you could have one book for pleasure, what would that one book be? One book for pleasure? Hmm. I got to tell you, I, if I could get... Well, so do you have other books or just one? I will allow a set if they're related. I got to be honest, the New and Old Testament, I mean, there's so many stories in those books. I think it's something that can keep you continually not only entertained, but sane if you're on a deserted island. That's what I'd have to say, the New and the Old Testament. Well, you know, that's what Billy said. He said the Bible or a military book. And in fact, his answer was yeah. uh, the Bible or another book. But yeah. I picked another book, something like War and Peace is a really long book. Um, right. <laughs> trying to think of some other really long books because <laughs> if you're going to be there a while, you might as well read something interesting. Let me think. I might even take a go at Watchmen. I'm still trying to figure that whole thing out. People have answered that as well. Have they really? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Another hypothetical if someone were to make an action figure of you, what Ooh. would be your accessory? Oh, man. My accessory would have to be a bow and arrow. Okay. I like that. I like a bow and arrow. I think it's better than a rifle or something like that. I think a bow and arrow would be fun. Ethan said, since you're a Civil War buff, it'd probably be a Civil War rifle or sword or something like that. Yeah, that would be fun. You know, that would be fun, too, because I'm a bow hunter, and I think that's more me than anything. So I think I'd like to have the bow and arrow. Boy, I'm just killing him. I'm just ruining everything, man. <laughs> I mean, we're kind of close, though, right? Yeah. It's kind of close. It's not like it's you take roller skates, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's close. Because this is the first time you two have worked together, so you really don't know each other well. And it won't be the last. He is just tremendous, and what an honor it is, and I hope he wants to work with me again. He's enjoying it. He certainly is enjoying it. He's killing it. He is He is killing it. I think he's done, actually. I think he might be done with the book. Oh, wow. Issue one came out, and issue six is already finished. Whew, guy's a machine. Yeah, he sure is. He sure is, but it's fun, and it's a privilege looking at his work. Every time it comes in. Now, my next question. When you're relaxing, what is your beverage of choice? Oh, a nice single malt scotch. Ah, oh, excellent. Excellent. Indeed. I've been turned on to scotch. It's very good. Very smooth. Yes, it is. Like that. Yes, it is. Yeah, whiskey, bourbon, too sweet for me. I love red wine, a Cabernet, you know? Yep. Give me a headache, though. But I also gulp wine because uh -huh. it just tastes so good. I'm just <laughs> gulping it, you know? But definitely a single malt. Definitely a, a good single malt. I have so many different types I like. So I can't really pick one in particular. I'd go with that. Ethan really didn't know. He was thinking like uh, either moonshine or a bud, something simple. You're more complex than that. Oh, yes. My gosh, man. You know, I'm a, I'm a Roosevelt Republican. <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt's my man. So, I, you know, I'm, I always fancied myself part of the patrician class. Okay. So you give me a Lede single malt or something and a fire <laughs> and my pipe. So my wife thinks I should be blowing bubbles out of it instead of smoke when I, I have a pipe. I'm turning all my friends on to smoking pipes now. And it's so great. And all I have to do is open the bag of tobacco and say, you smell this. And I've probably gotten two dozen of my friends to smoke pipes. <laughs> my dad used to smoke pipes. Yeah. He had all kinds of pipes. Oh, dude, you should. You should. It, it's really great. Well, no one should smoke. I'm not condoning smoking. But if you are going to smoke, smoke a pipe. Or a good Cuban cigar. And the reason why people like Cuban cigars so much 
is because they don't use pesticides. Ah. And that's why you don't get a sore throat the next day. So another little thing there for you. My next question, what is the oddest job you've ever had? Outside of comics, just like a really kind of off-the-beaten-path job. Well, I was a security guard at a dairy where all the dairy trucks were. And the, as my uncle, who was the supervisor there, would call them crackerheads, you know, crack addicts or whatever. And the crackerheads would try to steal the milk and sell the milk and break into the trucks. Hmm. But there was also eggs. It was overnight. I mean, I worked from 11 p.m. to probably 5 a.m., 6 a.m. That was my shift four nights a week during the summers. So that was pretty crazy. I was also a busboy and then a bar back at the Palladium in 1986 and 87. I got to meet Mark Hamill, who threw his son's fifth birthday party on a Sunday night at the Palladium, which is kind of crazy because I was the only bar back or, you know, I was a busboy first who wasn't going to be the next movie star because I was a cartoonist. You know, everybody else who worked there were actors. I was the only one who really worked, I think. So they're like, you're in charge of the Michael Todd room. I was the one who was gathering up and helping the celebrities and stuff like that. I also got to hang out with Tommy Lee and Nikki Six and Tommy Lee from, you know, from Motley Crue. And mm -hmm. Tommy Lee was the coolest guy in the world. Nikki Six was blown out of his mind on who knows what <laughs> kind of drugs. But, uh, but he was so nice. And I'm like, well, here's the thing. He's like, no, you have a beer too. I'm like, no, I'm not. He's like, come on. What are you going to fire you? They have a problem with me. So I was drinking beers with Tommy Lee. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was such a nice guy. Real tall. What a really nice guy. Though he was married to Heather Locklear at the time, and that beautiful blonde with him was not Heather Locklear. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just a friend. Who am I to judge? Yeah, who am I to judge? Right. Just a friend. <laughs> wow, you'll never forget that. That's awesome. No way. Oh, no. And I, got, I met Mike Tyson, the actor who was in, oh, what's his name? Christopher something. He was in a film called Fade to Black and the bicycle film where they race the bicycles. Oh, Breaking Away? Breaking Away, yes. And he was a really sweet guy. And I remember I came up to him and there was a question that he had asked Mickey Rourke in Fade to Black. What was Rick's last name in Casablanca? And a lot of people don't know that. And I knew it was Blaine. So I was helping him, you know, bring them the drinks, you know, stuff like that. And I said, oh, by the way. Rick's last name was Blaine in Casablanca. And his eyes just lit up because I don't think he knew anyone knew who he was, you know, there. You know what I mean? Because there was a lot of stars and stuff at one of these events. And he was just like, yes, it was. And we just had this great conversation. It was, it was fun. So I guess that's probably the oddest job yeah. I've had, unless you count this one. <laughs> that's, like, I, that's the dreamiest job each yeah. one can ever have, oh, you know, is to write and draw comics for a living. My gosh. <laughs> I didn't ask Ethan to guess an answer for that one or the next one because it's just too open. But what he said he did, his odd job, was loading the traps at a gun range. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then picking them up afterwards. The ones that you know, you're running out there, the clays that don't get, you yep. know, yep. Mm -hmm. dust them off. <laughs> Reuse them. I hope you had good hearing protection for that one. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're out there at a gun range. He was like ow, down in a ow, bunker. Ow. Yeah, loading them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope you learned, I hope you learned to duck. <laughs> Thank God he did, because I wouldn't be here right now That's talking right. to you if he didn't. So, <laughs> My final question is, what do you think the best film was ever made of any genre? It doesn't matter if it's considered you know, award-winning Oscar. Just what do you think is the best film, your favorite film? My favorite? Okay, comic book genre. I have to go with The Rocketeer. Oh, that's a great film. I have it on Blu-ray, yeah. I love it. It is one of my all-time favorite films. I just love it so much. It didn't do so great in the box office or something, but of course mm -hmm. you had Jennifer Connelly. Right. I got to hang out with Billy Campbell 
a few years back at a convention in England. And I'm like, you're a rocketeer. <laughs> and he was so cool. And we just got to hang. And it was the rugby championship between England and France. It was play- And it was pouring out. So we're in our hotel, in the bar, the hotel. And there had to be maybe maybe 50 people. It wasn't a small bar, but I'm just sitting there with Billy Campbell watching cellar football and stuff. But I'm like, wow, this is one of the greatest sports I've ever seen in my life. If you ever watch rugby, it really is a great sport. And he played rugby. So he was filling me in on all rugby stuff. So I'm palling around with him because I brought him a, a rocketeer drawing that I did. And he just loved that. He was over the moon with it. And this is real, real sweet guy. Really great, sweet guy. Dave Stevens was in that film, too. He did a little cameo. Yes, he was. And he blew up. Yep. <laughs> what an honor. <laughs> yes, they lit up Dave. Yeah, what a great, that's a good death, though. Good Hollywood death. If you're one cameo and you get blown up in a rocket trying to test it, you know, it's pretty great. Even some of those Nazis that were in the uniform, they, you know, the generals or whatever, they should have got burned up too. <laughs> but yeah, he blew up. Maybe he lifted up and just boom, and then he fell to the ground. And they're trying to put him out. <laughs> it's a really good film, though. I love that film. I love the music. I love the way it ended. I love that time period. All that stuff. Just to share with you, I asked Ethan, and he said the Iron Giant. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Makes you cry every time. Oh, yep. that ending? Mm-hmm. You could be whoever you want. He's just Superman. Yeah, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I don't buy a lot of DVDs and stuff, but those are the kind of films you want to have. You want to keep those. Oh, yeah. Let my kids watch, you know, when they were small and stuff. And the Iron Giant's like the Adventures of Robin Hood, the Errol Flynn one, 1938. That whenever it's on, you just stop and you just watch it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And that's another one of my top 10 or top three favorite films, I guess, of all time. But yes, the Iron Giant just uh, hits you right there, you know? It's been great, Billy. I've had a lot of fun talking to you. And I will see you in Philly. And thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you, my friend. It's a privilege to be here. And I really appreciate you uh, wanting me here. And I can't wait to do it next time. Please have me back. Now, if you recall from previous episodes, I said that I had a guest coming up. And we're going to discuss a 70s pop icon. Well, my guest next week is artist David Hahn. He's the artist on The Six Million Dollar Man coming out through Dynamite Entertainment in March. David was also the artist on Batman 66, Man from UNCLE, and Batman 66, Wonder Woman. So we will discuss the 1960s Batman TV series, working on those comics that he did, and also The Six Million Dollar Man and 70s pop culture. Plus, we will kick back with the creator. I hope you are enjoying my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age books that I'm spotlighting in my collection. You can find them each week on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. Please share with me your favorite Silver Age and Bronze Age comics from your collection and send me your feedback at Creator Talks Pod. If you want to reach me directly via email, contact at creatortalks.com. That's contact at creatortalks.com. If you like the show, please write a review or leave a star rating on iTunes. It goes a long way to helping the show stand out amongst all the podcasts. And if you like another podcast, by all means, please take the time to leave a review or star rating for them. It helps them a lot and they would greatly appreciate it. It's easy to do, but we tend to forget. Please accept this gentle reminder. This show is available on the aforementioned iTunes and Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And please subscribe to the show. It's free. Don't miss a single interview. You never know who's coming up, but I do. That's why I always tell you who's coming up the next week. 
I work way ahead, folks. So thank you once again to my sponsor, The Comic Book Shop at 1855 in Wilmington, Delaware. And thank you for joining me this week. I know you have a lot of choices out there, so thank you for spending a little time with me. And I'll be back next Thursday with David. For Creator Talks, this is Christopher Calloway. Until next time. Thank you.